Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Wanda Skowonska on the topic, Contemporary Conversions. This November 2011 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Wanda Skowonska is a school counsellor and registered psychologist. an ordinary person and I kind of have come across people who have converted to the Catholic faith and if there's one experience that totally overwhelms me and kind of almost sort of go into a stupor wondering about it, it's that I can't get over how uh, amazing the journey is for most people to find their way. I often imagine had I not been born a Catholic had I been born in the middle of Saudi Arabia as a Muslim, would I ever be able to find my way to the faith? Had I been born a communist, would I ever have been able to think my way outside the convention and the um, habituation of my upbringing? And I, I don't really know that I can answer it. I hope I would be able to. But the people I'm going to speak to you about tonight certainly found their ways out of very inhospitable backgrounds to the faith. <coughs> Um, most of you have probably come across the books um, by Patrick Madrid and these books, The Roads to Rome. It's a four or five part series of conversion stories in the past. Um, there are lots of conversion stories around in the faith. As Scott Hart observed in his introduction to Patrick Madrid's book, Surprised by Truth, the practice of recounting conversion stories has been around as long as Christianity itself. We've got evidence of St. Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9 and Galatians 2. And after all the mission given to all of us by Christ, we've got that mission as baptised Christians to spread the gospel in whatever way we can to the ends of the earth, whether we're layman, priest, nun, single person or married. Pope John Paul II said in 1987 in his encyclical about missions, which is Redemptoris Missio, he said, in the name of the whole church, I sense an urgent duty to repeat the cry of St. Paul. From the beginning of my pontificate, I have chosen to travel to the ends of the earth in order to show this missionary concern. My direct contact with peoples who do not know Christ has convinced me even more of the urgency of missionary activity, a subject to which I'm devoting the present encyclical. Second Vatican Council sought to renew the Church's life and activity in the light of needs of the contemporary world. The Church emphasised the Church's missionary nature, basing it on a dynamic way on the Trinitarian mission itself. The missionary thrust therefore belongs to the very nature of the Christian life and is also the inspiration behind ecumenism, that they may all be one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. John 17:21. Above all, there is a new awareness that missionary activity is a matter for all Christians, for all dioceses and parishes, church institutions and associations. We might say in that also for every profession, every workplace, every bus ride, every place you are on the street. I know one, one fellow who gets on a bus and every time he gets on a bus he ends up talking about God. I don't know if we all could do that, but he ends up having long discussions with gays and atheists and so on sometimes fights too, but um, he tries. However, when we consider conversions, we can draw a distinction between our age and the previous 1900 years. Hans Urs von Balthasar said in a book called Science, Religion and Christianity, 
we move from an age of cosmology to anthropology. What that means is in the past there were these four, he, he's talked about four great ways of seeing the world. He talked about Judaism, Christianity, Islam and paganism. So these were had a complete cosmology, they were a way of seeing the world. They had a profound influence in their own way on the Western world. But you could say in an age that the age of these cosmologies is practically over in the West because we have a current secular atheist deluge or I sometimes call it like a blitzkrieg or a, an assault um, on, our, on all our lives where many live by a creed of practical atheism even if they are Christians. As the Pope said, etsi deus non daretor, as if God didn't exist. There's the denial of the presupposition of all four of these cosmologies, Judaism, Christianity, Islam and paganism, and that is that man is not God. That's the first presupposition of all those cosmologies. Man isn't God. Human being is not God. But he nevertheless, he or she, can be defined by immediate relation to what is absolute and God. The current secular humanist mindset denies not only that there is a God but denies empirical evidence that human beings are haunted all their lives by the absolute and by wanting to return to the absolute. Ignore, ignores that there, with all these four cosmologies there was a common pattern of a bearer of revelation. There was always somebody who revealed, um, who saw heavenly things and revealed it to others. Now previous conversions used to be from one cosmological view to the other, rejecting the pagan gods for the one true God or seeing the fulfilment of God's promise in the Old Testament in the New or seeing that Muhammad was not God's prophet, that Jesus Christ is truly God, man, or that the Protestant version of events was a distortion of the original Christian revelation. Perhaps Vatican II's Gaudium at Spes put it best by seeing in the spirit of our age one in which there's a total emancipation of humanity wrought solely by human effort, ignoring the existence of God and the spiritual dimension of human growth. At that time, the new Pope John Paul II said in a sign of contradiction in 1979, shortly after he was elected, he was, uh, um, established as Pope, he said that um, every Christian should fight the countercultural forces of the age because he had seen them and witnessed them, um, the ideological movements of the time. He had seen the evils of fascism and totalitarianism and he knew that people in the West were not ready to counteract the secular humanist view without God because it didn't present itself as such. It presented itself in a much friendlier light. But it really was a revival in a sense of the Pelagian heresy that man can do it all himself, doesn't need grace, that man can do it himself. And interestingly, the Pelagian heresy in England flourished at a time when there'd been great material um, progress. And now, in Western society, there has been the Industrial Revolution, the Enlightenment, all the progress since then, and also the Pelagian heresy, man can do it without God. It's a revival of the same idea. So that's what we're living in now. We also had the deluge of various psychologies, um, not only Freudian. At least Freud did believe in good and evil and in some form of original sin, even if he defined it in a strange way. Um, but 
people like Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow and the humanistic psychologists came to the Catholic world bearing gifts and nobody could recognise that they were toxic gifts. They kind of said, oh, psychology, humanistic psychology can cure all your problems. And Catholics fell over themselves, nuns, priests, laity, they all fell over themselves running to the encounter groups, but they didn't recognise that there was a false belief system that man and, and you know, men and women were defined in a completely alien way to Christian thinking. Not that they were made in the image and likeness of God, that was out, but basically they were there to fulfil themselves in the best way they could. So these secular um, mindsets that have thrown out the old cosmology, so we're living in a much harder age as regards conversions. So indeed there are some in the Christian world who don't even think that there's a need for missionary activity. I believe a nun once from one of the orders in Sydney said, thank goodness we don't go around trying to convert people anymore. Some within the Catholic world even see missionary activity in colonialist terms. They think that it was an imposition of a worldview on others who had their own worldview already and weren't really nasty, fascist, totalitarian types to take away the original belief system, kind of highway robbery of some initial happier state. In instances of abuse in religious homes or orphanages that are taken as indisputable examples of a typical colonialist mindset belonging to a bad past. Others, by contrast, as we know, misunderstood Vatican II's exhortation to go out to the world and interpreted it as meaning that the world had a lot to teach the church. So some have been missionaries of secularism to Catholicism and to Christianity in general. Of this phenomenon, which exists in our time, especially since Vatican II and is falsely called the spirit of Vatican II, Dinesh D'Souza, great American apologist, who's written this book called What's So Great About Christianity, said in 2008, Here in the West there are a lot of liberal Christians. Some of them have assumed a kind of reverse mission. Instead of being the church's missionaries to the world, they've become the world's, uh, they've become the world's missionaries to the church. They devote their moral energies to trying to make the church more democratic, to assure equal rights for women, um, to legitimise homosexual marriage and so on. A small but influential segment of liberal Christianity rejects all the central doctrines of Christianity. H. Richard Niebuhr is the great conservative um, Protestant theologian in the 20th century. He famously summed up their credo by saying, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. However, despite the anti-religious and anti-metaphysical an anti-missionary tenor of the atheist age in the West. And the parallel, strange new growth of um, the New Age subjectivism that you get alongside it, saying all knowledge is relative and Christ exists if you think and if you make you feel comfortable and you're in nirvana, that's fine. That's the way the New Ages say. In spite of all of this, people are converting to Christianity, to Catholicism. Um, in fact... Dinesh D'Souza, in this book which I've mentioned, What's So Great About Christianity, says that the secularisation thesis is failing. What he's saying is, if you think that secularism is going to win in the world, think again. And one of the great um, writers of our age, George Weigel, said exactly the same thing. He said the message of 9-11 was faith matters to people. He said it's the message that... Uh, a liberal America did not want to take on board that people live and die 
by their beliefs. They matter. Dinesh D'Souza says, in an age of increasing globalisation and modernisation, the world as a whole is becoming more religious, not less. He points out that while Europe has moved away from Christianity, Christianity as a whole has been expanding its influence. Now he's talking about Christianity in general, in Central, South America, in Africa and Asia. He says the new face of Christianity is no longer white and blonde, but yellow, black and brown. He quotes Philip Jenkins, the author of The Next Christendom, who says, if you want to visualise a typical contemporary Christian, we should think of a woman living in a village in Nigeria or in a Brazilian favela, like a village. Jenkins says the era of Western Christianity has passed. Now, we may not agree with this, but this is what he says. It's passed within our lifetimes and the day of a southern Christianity is dawning. D'Souza says that the vital centres of Christianity are Buenos Aires, Manila, Kinshasa and Addis Ababa, for examples. He gives a few pertinent statistics. In 1990, more than 80% of Christians lived in Europe and America. Today, 60% live in the developing world. More than two out of three evangelical Christians now live in Asia, Africa and South America. Europe has 560 million Christians, America 260 million, yet many of the Many of these are in name only. In comparison, there are 480 million Christians in South America, 330 million in Asia, 360 million in Africa. The vast majority are practising Christians, symbolised by the um, Nigerian Anglican who met the uh, rather effete, <coughs> delicate Anglican priest in London who was poo-pooing some comment of St Paul's in the Bible and the African Bishop said to him, the difference between you and me, he said, holding up the Bible, is we take this seriously and you don't. He said, it means something to us, it doesn't to you. And I think that's the case. When you're talking about Christians in the developing world, they're on fire for it. They will go to great lengths to practice it. I believe a lot of the um, people in South America who are converting to the Protestant sects, while we should be unhappy about that, that they've gone from Catholicism, often the Catholicism they're leaving is the liberal theologian pick up a rifle and shout, hey, Che Guevara, and go and shoot somebody. Well, if, the, if what, what is on offer up the street is that Jesus loves you, he will support you, and he, you know, he, he, will, uh, you know, re, he has redeemed you, and he will help you in your life, which message you know, would you prefer to hear? It's often the choice given to people is a pretty bad choice. Now, Dinesh D'Souza also quotes that a century ago, 10% of Africa was Christian. Today, it's nearly 50%. That's an increase from 10 million in 1990 to 350 million today. Uganda alone has 20 million Christians and is projected to have 50 million by the middle of the century. In Brazil, there were 50 million Catholics in 1950, but now he's got stats to prove there are 120 million. He says there are a lot of charismatics among them. In Korea, where Christians already outnumber Buddhists, I mean, Korea was a Buddhist country, huh? they're converting like wildfire in Korea. There are numerous megachurches where 100,000 members attend. The Yoido Full Gospel Church apparently reports 750,000 members. In fact, the minister has said as a mercy, would some stay away on Sunday so others can have a chance to attend because they haven't got room for them all to attend. 
Despite the limitations imposed by the Chinese government, it's estimated that now there are 100 million Christians in China who worship in underground evangelical and Catholic churches. At the current growth rates, David Ackerman observed in his book Jesus in Beijing, that China in a few decades will become the largest Christian country in the world. Now while we in the West live in a kind of a twilight zone, we wonder if any conversions are occurring here. I have to say, despite the fact that we're not where the action is, the answer is yes, they are. And they reveal the psychological and spiritual forces that are part of every life in all the individuals concerned. Stories I'm going to recount are people I met, every single one of them. Sometimes I was just so enthralled by the stories that I couldn't kind of circle. I was just sitting there writing, asking if I could write it down as they spoke. And they said yes. In one case, I was actually sharing a hotel room at a conference with the Russian ex-communist convert and for some reason she couldn't fall asleep so you know, she started to tell me the conversion story. If you can imagine this scene, I had a paper and pen and under the dinner I was sort of writing all this down as she spoke and, um, and then eventually turned it into an article. She was very happy um, that it happened, it was that way. But, um, it was, I was just so astounded I couldn't sleep the rest of the night you know, at, at the journey she had overtaken, undertaken. Her name is Galina Maslenikova. She's a psychologist like me. We met in 1999 at an HLI conference in Toronto. Very first day the police actually surrounded the hotel because there was an anti-life protest from all the Canadians. So coming from communist Russia to the free west, she wasn't allowed to go out of the hotel. I tried to explain this was an unusual event. And then later I took her up for a hamburger at Harvey's Hamburger Bar, but <laughs> to be not allowed out of the hotel on the first day in the free west, that was something. HLI, Human Life International, is a pro-life organisation that was formed by Father Karl, uh, Father Karl Marx, Paul Marx, <laughs> the good one, the good Marx, Father Karl Marx is, no, I mean Karl Marx was the founder of the communist, um, yeah, the communist movement, but no, um, Father Paul Marx is a Benedictine and perhaps some of you heard the talk of Father Linus Clovis a couple of weeks ago, well he's now the spiritual director of that movement which kind of changed its name to Family Life International. There's still Human Life International and Family Life International but he's the spiritual director of it and uh, they're a very active pro-life movement in many countries of the world. And um, So I ended up at this conference, Galina spoke no English, um, she spoke Russian and Polish and by sheer accident I was placed in a room with her and guess what, I speak Polish so I ended up being interpreter. And um, and hearing her story. There's all sorts of little strange events happened at that conference. Now, she was the head. She was born into a communist family and she actually was so good at her job. She was the head of the Youth Komsomol League. That's the Youth Communist Right Now, her, my family comes from that part of the world. I've met cousins there and so every year when we would go sort of on Children of Mary which is my cousins were wearing red scarves and doing this over in Poland and Latvia and Russia. So that's the way they grew up. I grew up differently. I once said to a cousin there, look, I used to wear a little red scarf. She said, I used to too. I said, mine meant that I was a member of the Holy Angel League and she said, mine meant that I was a little communist growing up well and we had a good laugh over that. But um, she, yeah, that's, that was the reality. And Galena was the one in charge and she 
in, you know, really got people involved in it. And uh, she was an atheist and she did all her communist learning well. She knew all about Marx and Lenin and so on. Now, she related a story to me, as I told you, in 1999, which was the, the, that uh, conference for Human Life International. She was attending her very first pro-life conference and she was on her very first trip out of Russia. What had happened was Human Life International had a branch in Poland and they had bought her a ticket, sent it by mail, and she got on a plane and she flew. What they'd have forgotten to send her was any money because she really was poor. She lived in a room in a friend's house um, at that stage. Lives in a little flat now with her daughters, but like she had no money when she got on the plane, not even to buy like you know, like, I mean, forget a coffee at the airport. She just turned up at the airport. Somebody dropped her off and that was it. And she went on a wing and a prayer and she said, Dear God, if you want me to attend this conference, please, you know, help me to get a bit of money so I'm not embarrassed so I can buy some food. Because she didn't even know if, you know, she was going to be able to buy food when she got there. On the way, she had to stop at Amsterdam. It was a KLM flight to Toronto. And it was announced at the airport that there was a delay because of inclement weather and all the people on the plane were uh, bused to a hotel. In compensation, every passenger was given $100. <laughs> and the next day, the weather cleared up and she got on the plane and on she flew. She then arrived in Canada, in Toronto, and an, a great apology was made to her at the baggage because her baggage had been lost. So when she came to the hotel room, I was there, she walked in with nothing. And I said, oh, you have any baggage? She said, no. But she said, I trust in God. I thought, this is a good start to a friendship. <laughs> and what happened was, about two hours later, there was a knock on the door saying, your baggage has been found as compensation. Would you accept another $100, please? So by the time she got there, she had $200 in her bag. And... Uh, that's, that was the start of it. Now, what happened was, um, she was, she told me the story about where she was born. It was actually in Tashkent, in Uzbekistan, even though she was Russian. She lost both her parents due to illness. So in that situation, the communist kind of um, networks really did take care of orphans and people well, but the other side of it was you got totally immersed in the ideology. She remembers always being warned in the Communist Party meetings, don't have anything to do with Christians and that Jesus Christ is a very dangerous person. But that was the first mistake the Communists made in her life because she never forgot that he was a dangerous person. Jesus <laughs> is dangerous. She said it always puzzled her. She said she put it, filed it away for future reference. She had to find out why he was such a dangerous person. But she didn't have much to do with him in childhood and young adulthood. Now, she, uh, she and her sister, at one point, were sent to Tomsk because there was this system whereby you got sent to all different places in the Soviet Union. It was sort of like you didn't get too attached to any one place. And she um, went there, she did a degree, and then for work she was sent to Lvov in the Ukraine, formerly of Poland. You know, after the war, I don't know if you know this, but any Pole who grows up knows this like they know ABC, that Lvov always belonged to Poland, now it belongs to the Ukraine. Um, what happened was, 
you think about in the Ukraine, pretty Christian country, even though it was also under the Soviet yoke, and you've got two kinds of Christians there. You've got the Uniate Catholics and you've got the Orthodox Christians, right? So um, she stepped to this country and she worked there every day and part of her work was that she sort of finished at something like two or three in the afternoon. She'd walk home. And as she walked home, there was this church. And she thought, well, one day she thought, why not go inside? She thought, nobody's looking. I won't be shamed. Just curiosity. So she walked inside. She said from the first moment she walked in, and it was a Uniate Catholic church. What do you mean by Uniates? Um, the Uniates are the people who kept in union with Rome. They're the Orthodox. They've got their own right. Um, and they have their own, you know, cathedral. So sometimes in a in a diocese, you'll get two bishops. One is the Orthodox, and one is the Uniate, and they have very similar liturgies. It's just that one believes the Pope is their leader, and the other group have the Orthodox um, patriarch. So you could just define it as one like a Catholic and one schismatic. Uh, yeah. Yes, that's right. And it's um, I mean, they've had a big revival since the communist. Uh, system fell since 1989. In fact, Paul Stenhouse had an article in Annals. He went over. He's there with all these Ukrainians, very colourful with all the, the sort of different robes and so on. And they had a great opening of the church and just very um, exciting for the church, really. And they're very, you know, sort of proud of um, having survived under communist rule. But Galena knew nothing of this. And let me say, Galena is just the Russian version of Helena, right? Helen. They say G, where we say H, Galena, or Helena. So they say Gollywood instead of Hollywood. <laughs> I always thought that was a bit funny, but anyway. But she went inside this Catholic church. She sits there and she says, I knew somebody was there, but I didn't know who. And she said she just kept looking at the front, wondering, who is it who's here? She had no idea how to pray. This is a person who had never said a prayer in her life. She just sat down, looked, and she just sat there trying to find out why she felt somebody was there. So she gazed at the tabernacle, as she remembered, and she went out. She came back again. Came back a few times, and sometimes there'd be a mass going on. She had no idea what it was all about. She just sat at the back, and of course, this is, um, you know, in the 1980s, everybody assumed what anybody would assume in a church. This is a spy sent by the communists, a spy on us. So, of course, nobody would talk to her. And she was too scared to talk to them. So she just sat there and listened to them and she tried to get the plot. She said, I knew there was, a, there was God, but then there was a Holy Spirit, but then there was Jesus, and then there was Mary, and then Joseph, and then there was... There's Matthew, and you can imagine a person for the first time hearing this welter of names, and she's trying to connect the dots, get the plot together, and uh, just very hard, you know. But she said, I, I just knew there was God. That, that's the thing I clung to, and I knew there was this book called Bible. And I heard of heaven and hell, and she was hooked already, wanting to know more about this. Then... Her two teenage daughters became very suspicious of her and they started to follow her because they lived with her. And one day, to their horror, they found her walking inside the Catholic Church. I mean, can you imagine this? They were hiding in the bushes 
and shaking with fear, thinking their mother had become, I mean, it's like, it's worse than an alcoholic or a, you know, like she's actually gone into a church. So they were following her <laughs> for a while, actually, for months before they confronted her with it and sort of made her admit her foul deed and said, you have gone into a church. And she said, I admit it, I did, you know, and so on. But meantime, she was desperate to get hold of this thing called the Bible. And she thought, where can I get it? And she said, who will ever speak to me? So one day, you know, she said, look, I know there's a God, so I'll ask God. She said, dear God, help me get a Bible. I don't know. Where the, what, how to kind of go about it and she said I suppose I could get one in the shop but I, I don't know, I don't want to be embarrassed by walking into one, people will see me in this anyway after that mass one of the people of the congregation had enough courage to come up and say you know, hello they don't smile much there, if you've ever travelled there you know, you just sort of have a pretty grim look on your face all the time, they said hi, hi and they said who are you yeah, and okay and she said what is this thing called Bible and um, they said, you want one? Yes, in Russian, if you... Yes, okay. Next week she had a Bible in her hand. So she went home, started to read it. From the, you can imagine starting to read Genesis. Well, it's okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And she tried to kind of make sense of the rest of it. And a few of them started to realise she was a genuine seeker. So they spoke to her, but not too much. You know, there was always this guardedness. It's very hard for you... To imagine, I've, I've lived a little bit in that atmosphere when I've travelled there and it's like this real lack of trust of people. You just don't know what they're up to. That's the worst result of a communist system, that it breaks down trust between people. And so they spoke a bit and she'd got hold of the Bible and so on. So she decided in the end, that's it. I've read some of the Bible. I, I don't really understand the whole plot, but as much as I understand of it, I want to be a Christian, she thought. Okay. So she said, that's it. She told a friend, like one friend, she had her own age, that she said, I, I did trust. And she said, that friend decided to come to me. And I, said, I looked up the book. I thought there must be a main office for accepting people who were going to be Christians. So she rang up this main office and it was the Orthodox office. She would had no idea what the difference was. So she rings up, makes an appointment, goes and waits. And um, because in countries with large Christian populations, the priests are regarded differently. I mean, for example, in Poland, you go to see a priest after Mass, you're in a queue of about 20 people, and you just wait as you go up. And then finally, when you get to see the priest and say your few words, um, you feel really lucky, like you've won the lottery that day. Priests are just held in, in a different... So here there was a waiting room for the Orthodox bishop, and there's a queue going closer and closer to the front. She's sort of sitting in this waiting room with quaking knees, with her friend next to her holding her hand, saying, look, it's okay, be brave, be brave, but it's okay, you know, like, you'll be all right. Said, what will I say to the bishop? He might ask me questions, or what will I say? But don't worry, you'll be right, you'll be right. <laughs> so as she's getting closer, suddenly the door opens to the waiting room and in comes an old babushka. A babushka is like an old grandma. That's the common word they use for an elderly lady with a scarf on her head. And she says, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, I'm so upset today. Oh, my God, I don't know how to get on a bus to go to this place I'm going to and nobody will help me. Will you help me? And she looks at Galena and her friend. And Galena says, look, Babushka, I, I've got an appointment here. You know, I, how can I help you? Please help me. I, I don't know where. If you get on the bus, my vision's poor. I don't know what to do. Ah, like this. And so in the end, you know, Galena, to keep it quiet, 
as the friend said, look, I'll come back another day, cancelled the appointment, went out with the babushka to the bus stop. She said, we'll go with you, where are you going? She said, to that such and such area. And Kalina didn't realise, but that bus took her straight to the church where she'd been going every single day, like not every day, but often. And she gets out with the bus and helps the old babushka up saying, you're okay now. And at that very moment, the priest walks out, the union priest, and suddenly, at that moment, he just sees her and he says, hello, I've seen you before. She says, I'm looking for where I can be a Christian. It just came out of her. And he said, God sent you here. You're in the right place. Come with me. And that's how her instruction was organised for the next nine months. And she became, she got Catholic instruction from the union priest who, who then had the courage to talk to her. <laughs> after all the times he'd seen her at the back of the church and she became a Catholic. Her two daughters who had followed her and challenged her and accused her of the vile crime of going inside a church also then became interested in Catholicism and on the feast of St Michael the Archangel in 1989, the year the Soviet Union fell, all three became Catholics and are absolutely fervent Catholics. Galina is the uh, head of the Catholic Life Office in Moscow at the Cathedral of Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception. I've seen her there in Moscow. I went to visit it. That's another story. How oh, I survived Moscow, I tell you, but I never go to Moscow. Anyway, um, but she was so happy to have become a Catholic and her life since then has just been this one continual miracle. You know, in the 1990s, she had no idea of who Monsignor Riley was or the helpers of God's precious infants. But one day in Moscow, she saw an abortion clinic and she thought, this is wrong. This is when she'd become a Catholic. So she started to pray outside the abortion clinic. She started to say the rosary. And she just said, and my girl started to walk in. And she said, what are you doing? She said, oh, I'm 13 and I, I'm, I'm pregnant. And, that. and she said, don't do that. Come with me and have a talk. And she saved that baby's life. She talked to the girl actually converted her to Catholicism in the meantime, and the boy that she later met who married her, he also became a Catholic. I mean, this is Russia where, you know, really to convert to Catholicism is regarded as the pits by the Orthodox. But this is Galena. Um, Galena then uh, met the local bishop, uh, well, the cardinal, actually, Cardinal Mazur. He was actually kicked out at, at um, one point because the Orthodox thought that he was having a bit too much success proselytising. Mm -hmm. So they sent another one now, I forget his name, but he, you know, she's now working for him. She travels from, if you can imagine, five Australias alongside each other. She travels that distance each year, sort of giving pro-life message and giving witness to her story. She was She goes to St Petersburg, to the Catholic seminary there. She'll go all the way to... Lake Baikal, which is like five time zones away. She'll go all the way to Irkutsk. She travels by train and gives witness to the faith. Uh -huh. At, and, uh, Sorry, yes. Uh, the Orthodox Christians there, aren't they kind of controlled by the regime? Well, they were under the communists. There was a great deal of control, but now there's been a bit of a revival. I mean, not as much as everybody had hoped, but there is a revival. I was, and when I was in Moscow, I walked into many Orthodox churches. They were packed on weekdays. I mean, I, I don't know the statistics, but they were packed on weekdays. And if you, you know, had to be careful not to kind of do or say the wrong thing, 
because they're very reverent. I mean, um, there's usually singing going on. Um, you know, you have to wear a scarf because I mean, it's just there's no option. But that they just hand you one or practically put it on you as you're walking in, and um, there you stand. And if you kind of look around or do too much the wrong way, they think you're being irreverent. You know, boy, they'll let you know. I committed the capital crime of taking a, a photo in the Cathedral of Our Lady of Kazan in Moscow opposite Red Square. They'll never do it again. <laughs> I ended up in a fight. Somebody was pulling my camera off me and I was pulling it back saying I'm Australian tourist and they're pulling it back and I'm pulling it back and I just begged them for mercy and said I didn't see all the signs. That There was actually two signs saying camera with practically skull bones through them and across. But <laughs> I just honestly didn't see them. <laughs> I can just add something there. You know, the, because of the KGB control of the Orthodox Church during the days of, of communist rule, that the, uh, the Russian Orthodox outside of Russia split away. Yeah. You know, well, they were actually reconciled just less than a couple of years ago. Ah. Um, as a probably as a recognition of the fact now that the Orthodox Church is, you know, free of the of that stain. Yes. Yes. moved on from there. But at the moment, the Russian Orthodox are far more positive about dialogue and discussion with Pope Benedict than they were yes. under John Paul II. Yes. And so there is some positive moves. There are very there. positive moves. One of the reasons I heard that they didn't like to discuss things with uh, the previous Pope is that he was a Pole, and the Russians felt humiliated by the fact that a Pole had been instrumental in bringing down the Soviet Union, which was their firm belief. Was um, actually the previous, he's just passed away about 18 months ago, but the previous Patriarch of Moscow, the Orthodox Patriarch, his background was German. He's, I, somewhere in his family they were Lutherans from East Germany, or the East, from Prussia. Uh, uh, and they made their way into Russia and converted to Russian Orthodoxy, and eventually he, this young guy, becomes Patriarch of Moscow. So his background is German. Benedict's background, obviously, is Germans. Yes. They, they got on a lot better. Yeah, big than, connections, than, than yes. he did with John Paul II. Yes. So there's a whole new spirit of um, cooperation there. And uh, the Pope, apparently, is working towards a visit to Moscow at some point, but when it'll happen, we don't know. Um, Pope John Paul II had wanted to visit Moscow, but the Russians didn't allow him. Um, so he returned the, uh, the icon of Our Lady of Kazan and appeared on TV in the big cathedral of Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception that has the statue of Our Lady of Fatima in a very prominent place. It's marvellous. Really. The, the cathedral was in a state of total ruin. No, Like the roof had caved in, the walls, everything. It was just really, really a wreck in 1989. And Pope John Paul II did, as a priority, donated funds for the immediate rebuilding of that cathedral. He saw it as the priority. In the whole of Moscow, there are only two Catholic churches, actually. Um, there's that cathedral that has masses just about on the hour, every hour, in just about every language, all through all through Sunday. You get them in Korean, Armenian, you get them in Polish, and you know, one in Russian. I mean, it just goes on all day. And there's one near the Lubyanka. And I don't know if you know Russian history, but the Lubyanka was the great prison. It's like St. Auschwitz to a Russian. It was where all the political prisoners were tortured. Where Solzhenitsyn was imprisoned and in tortured and tortured there. When I was in Moscow, I went for a walk and saw that. And uh, nearby, there's a little Russian Orthodox church where a monk just sits and prays all day and incense rises to heaven. So interesting things are going on there. It may not be the conversion that everybody 
magically expected, but people are free to practice the religion and they do. So that's Galena and her, um, and I had the great uh, privilege of meeting her a few years ago, 2005 in Moscow. And we went around and um, I had many adventures, were all unintended, but you know, um, I did actually get to see the life office and met the main catechist in the room under the Immaculate Heart Cathedral. And she sat at her desk. I have a photo of her with all the picture, the map of Russia behind her. And I said, where is your work? And she said, I'm the catechist for all Russia. <laughs> so, I mean, of course she trains other catechists to go there, but she's in charge. And I, when I looked at the map, I just thought, I can't believe this. It's just too much to take in. But, yeah, they're constantly on the move uh, from, you know, place to place. And um, they have to be careful, too, the way they do it. But very uh, inspiring story. And she is converting people. She actually also organised Galena to have a pro-life seminar in the Russian Duma in the year 2005. Now, if anybody can see what that is an irony, the Duma is the Russian parliament. This is where, you know, the big communists held sway. She actually organised a pro-life seminar. Is the rate of abortion in modern Russia still as bad as it was under the communists? It was. See, Russia, you may or may not realise, it was the first country in the world to legalise abortion, formally put it into law in 1920. And so for a lot of them, um, yeah, abortion was just considered a method of contraception. Um, and people just went for one abortion after another. And um, I met people, and it's very um, interesting and like very moving as a psychologist because I actually had people who were older telling me stories of how they'd had abortions in younger years and how deeply they regretted it. And you really get the impression that they didn't care about life. They didn't care about themselves in those years. They said, when you're treated like absolute garbage, you just treat the life that you beget as garbage. You know, they, that, there was a different attitude. It wasn't a lifestyle option. There was a sense of real oppression under that system. And um, I heard many stories like that. Um, how much it's changing, I don't know, but Galena has certainly got a lot of programs going and um, she certainly put seminarians on fire there by giving a few lectures on pro-life topics. And she's very for Humanae Vitae and, you know, trying to get its teachings across. So this is all new to the Russians. I mean, they've never heard it. We've had it for 40 years and they've ignored it in the West. But they, when they listen, they actually kind of find it fascinating. I won't let it go, you know, because they're always sort of asking a thousand questions about it. So a bit different but that's Galena but moving on now to Sydney to tell the second conversion story a young woman Kush I met her outside Daisyville St Michael Church and there's a very exuberant extroverted priest at that church called Father Jersey Shonovich and um, the kind of priest who just say after mass everybody come put a coffee in the presbytery now so you know whether you want to or you don't want to everybody kind of gets swept there and he says no I make everybody dinner and he so he goes and makes bacon and eggs and nobody can help him all the women want to help him he says no 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 I will cook I will cook so I'm sitting at a table with about seven or eight people and I just say hello to Kush and Kush says hello to me and I said how long have you come to the church ever since I converted and I said oh well what have you converted from she said Zoroastrianism and I nearly fell off the chair because I've never met a Zoroastrian before. I said, you're kidding. Oh, no. I said, 
could you tell me your story? So she did over several hours and I couldn't get over the um, extraordinary nature of her journey. She said that her, she grew up, she was born in India and she was born in a Zoroastrian family. Now why are there Zoroastrians in India if it was born in Persia, that religion that believed, uh, um, was, she, as she explained it, she said it's a very ancient religion you know, King Cyrus and Darius were Zoroastrians. However, after the rise of Islam in the 7th century, she told me many Zoroastrians fled from Iran in about 1400 AD as they were persecuted for a long time by Muslims. And so they made India their home, and especially around Mumbai. There have been a group of them living in India ever since, about 70,000 of them more than live in Iran. There's only 20,000 who live in Iran now. And she's told me, Zoroastrians believe in the teachers of Zoroaster, a prophet who has revealed Ahura Mazda to us, who we understand as the Lord of Wisdom. He's the supreme divine authority. And according to this holy book, Avesta, Zoroastrians believe that Mazda was filled with the Holy Spirit. There was a good spirit represented by Spenta Mainu, who is for order and good. And then there's an evil spirit represented by Angra Mainyu, who's for chaos and destruction. She says, there will be an end of the world where evil will be purged and there'll be heaven on earth. And it's mentioned that the Son of God will come to the earth. She said, it's like the book of Genesis in that there were bad angels who fell away from God and um, there were good angels perpetually in conflict. She said, there were three basic principles taught to her as a Zoroastrian she said, good thought, good words and good deeds. They're the pillars of the life of the Zoroastrian. She said, in Mumbai, she said, I visited the temple every day. It's called the Fire Temple. And uh, she said, it's an essential ritual. We had no idol, she said, or figure there, but we worshipped fire. She said, water and fire were the agents of ritual purity. She took this extremely seriously. She, they said prayers around the fire. And we used the ancient language of Avesta. And they have very strong moral codes, the Zoroastrians, and they have competitions. And she said, I used to win prizes as having the most knowledge about my religion. And Kush said this about her faith, and I noted down the word, she said, though I visited the fire temple every day and always wanted to help others, my mother was kind to other people and instilled a sense of helping others in my brother and myself. I had these in a sense that the norms weren't enough. I was always curious about God and had questions about the ancient rituals and I always wanted to know more. She said, the years passed and I felt I did not get the answers I was seeking to the mysteries. I wondered about life after death and I even had a dream at the age of seven of a light-filled place with a throne and it made a deep impression on me. I just kept wondering and I, I just kept searching for the answers. Now, that's the end of her quote. She said, as a young girl in India, she knew some Catholics, but they did not seem to have the sense of an evil spirit that we Zoroastrians had. And they didn't seem to her be very observant about their faith, except for going to Mass on Sundays. She'd asked them about what they did in church, and they told me that they were eating bread and drinking wine. Hmm. And then they said, well, it's the body of Christ, but they couldn't explain any more about it to me. So I asked myself, you see this process of the 
psychological and a spiritual going, it doesn't let her go. It's like got a grip on her. She says, I asked myself, if Christ was the Son of God, then why didn't God help him? Why didn't he take him down from the cross? Why didn't God perform a miracle and do this? I kept asking them, but nobody could answer my question. Cush then relates a series of tragic experiences in her life. She was married in a Zoroastrian ceremony. Then they came as migrants to Australia. But with her husband, there were many, many difficulties and the whole situation broke up and she was left with enormous debts and had to pay off $60,000 for a failed business venture. And they were not her debts in reality, but she paid them off in any case. She said it was part of her mother's training to take on responsibilities, even if they weren't hers, and to do that what needed to be done. She said that... Um, you know that she was apologised to later for what she'd been done, what had been done to her. But she said she just took on the burden. She felt very alone, very abandoned, and very without much much help. And then she said she remembered what her mother had said: um, just do what's necessary, keep on going. So she ended up living alone, southern Sydney, southeastern Sydney, Malabar. Here's this church, pretty modernist church actually one of those octagonal sorts of things and one day it's not the Ukraine now it's Sydney Australia she's walking by this church and she looks at it and she says I wonder what's inside so she said well I'll go inside and have a look and as she found out later the church is never opened during the day it's locked after the mass in the morning but today it was open so she walked straight inside and she said, I felt a presence. Strange. She says the same thing as Galena. She said, I walked inside, I've sensed a presence so real. And she said, I knew it was the presence of God. And she said, all these questions had been going through my mind, like why was I born? Where are you, God? Are you alive? Will I die soon? She said, I used to think about these things for hours and then suddenly I knew I was in the presence of some kind of mysterious person. And the upshot of it was she thought it was also abnormal. She got terrified and ran out. So you would have seen this woman running straight out of the church and she ran all the way home. That's how it affected her. However, a few days later, she managed to do it again. And again, that church, which is always locked in the day, was opened in the afternoon. She went inside, but this time she sat down. And she said she knew she, there was somebody there. She's all alone in this church looking at the tabernacle and she just started crying. And she asked herself, why am I crying? And the more she asked herself, the more she cried. And she just said there was something going on in her, but she didn't quite know what it was. Well, she came back to visit the church because she happened to get to know some people who were Catholics who went to that church. So she went along to Sunday Mass. And she um, went along and there were questions that you know, started to get the better of her. Why do you stand? Why do you sit? What's the meaning of the bread and wine? She, asked, she listened to the sermons. Actually, I won't give the name of the priest, but it was a modernist priest. But she listened to the sermons. She found them you know, interesting. And she said, I used to ask questions of my friends again and again. There were too many questions about baptism, salvation and all, and I could not get the answers to everything I sought. And at that time, I thought, well, look, if I can't get all the answers here, I'll go and try some other Christians. So she actually thought, well, I'll go to the Baptists and the Salvation Army, which she did. So she went to all these places. She's a bit of a seeker. And um, she said that 
She went even to prayer meetings. She loved these big prayer meetings at the stage. She felt that that was a real sense of togetherness and a wow factor there. And then she, was, she got the New Testament and started to read it and she said she derived great spiritual comfort from these um, meetings that she had with Protestants and with Catholics. And she said uh, she used to ask questions like showing her spiritual nature. She used to say, what is the most important, faith or wisdom? And she said she sometimes used to think about it so much that she'd fall asleep not having found the answer. And she'd think, can you imagine a person who is racked with a question, what's more important, faith or wisdom, and praying to God about it? That's the kind of person she was. And her friends couldn't answer the question or would give whatever they thought off the top of their heads. She said she started to pray. She used to be on her knees, she said, sometimes, you know, quite a long time, and uh, pondering all the things that she was hearing. And then once she got ill... And she went to a meeting with a healing priest and was healed of it, so she was very impressed with that. It was actually some cancerous cells and then the following x-ray was clear, so she was really blown over by that. Um, and then she then went back, like she, in all her journey, she went back and she heard about the rosary. So as soon as she heard about the rosary, she was enthralled and she asked, could she learn it? So her friends taught it to her. And from the moment she learned it, she started to say it during the day. She'd be saying decades and she said, um, you know, I got a tremendous sense of peace, you know, praying. But she said she never quite got this idea of converting. She said she just wanted to go along and be members of these congregations. But she kept thinking, but I was born a Zoroastrian. She said, you have to understand that when you're born into Zoroastrianism, it's not just a matter of habit and culture. It's a really deep thing. It's, you know, your whole identity, your family history. You, ex you live in this belief and you're expected to die in it. Somehow, after all that I'd experienced with Christians, it was at that moment, after a year of all of this, it was hard to let go of the tradition and faith of my ancestors. I was interested in Christianity. I loved the prayers. I had extraordinary experiences, but when the actual moment came, I couldn't do it. But then one night, she said, I had a dream. And in the dream, his voice asks me, why are you so stubborn? Why don't you get baptised? Mm -hmm. And in the dream, she says back to the voice, but I'm a Zoroastrian. But she said, I knew the voice was that of Jesus. And he was asking me, as if he was following me. Um, and there were drops of white light in the dream. She described it all to me. There were lots of symbols in it. She said she got frightened waking up, but she said she knew that this was moving in a certain direction. She said, I tell you, it's not easy. To deal with all of this. She woke up and said, oh thank goodness that was a dream, but she knew that it wasn't just a dream. She said, she, she found herself in prayer asking Jesus, why do you want me to be baptised? And the answer came, because I want you to do my work. I found myself saying something like, okay, I want to do your work. And then gradually she got this quiet conviction and she was constantly praying about it. And she ended up going to get Catholic instruction and was baptised in St Christopher's in Bankstown in April of 2007. And she said of the day, after all the instruction um, and about the Eucharist and the crucifixion and everything, it all was very, very meaningful to her. She said the day of her baptism, she felt as if you know she was just on fire. She said she was saying the rosary every day up to the day of it. She said, I prayed it at night. Sometimes I'd pray at one or two in the morning. She said, I'd ask, 
in November, prayers for the Holy Soul. She said, I felt it was all very real, you know, that the Holy Souls were there. She said, I went, um, she moved then to Randwick and she was going to a Bible study course at Randwick Sacred Heart Church and uh, the local parish priests were there and they'd take time to answer her questions and so would Father Jersey Shinovich at Daisyville. She remembers the day of her conversion, really is the happiest of her life. Just cannot forget the um, zeal and the fire she had that day. And she's still got it. She hasn't lost it. When she speaks to you, you just see this in the way that she speaks. She says the more she got to know about the Eucharist, the more she loved it. She said, I love the Eucharist and getting to know about it. Everything about the Eucharist renews me more and more. So I read the Bible for a while every night and I'm going to read about St. Augustine because I've heard his writings are very good. And I've been told there are other good books to read. And she said, it's been a long road and I'm still on this wonderful journey with the living God. And that's her happiness. When you meet her, you just know this person is happy. So that's the, uh, another conversion. So and I thought I'd finish off the night with a Muslim, ex-Muslim conversion. A bit more dramatic. In case you think conversions don't apply to Muslims, think again. Coptic priest Father Zakaria Botros, who Al-Qaeda called one of the most wanted infidels in the world, putting a $6 million price on his head for anybody who will assassinate him, complained that only $6 million was put on his head. He said, oh, is that all I'm worth? John Bush, uh, George Bush was worth more, he said. Popular Arabic magazines... Middle East calling Islam's public enemy number one. He hosts a TV program called Truth Talk on Life TV. I think it's broadcast from America or Actually, we've got channel. Mine was, was my one. You know when you get them, the EWTN? Yes. It's one of the... There's a number of Coptic Orthodox channels. Right. One of them, it's, it's his one. Right. And he's a regular... Course, he's a regular on it. He's based in the USA now. They kicked him out of Cairo. They don't want the trouble. I, yeah. I believe they, they got My living. wife really enjoys watching him. Ah. Yeah. Well, apparently millions of Muslims um, have converted because of him. Or so, you know, the two, he actually was awarded the Daniel of the Year Award for his courage. Why has he got a price on his head? Daniel. Yeah, mass conversions of Muslims to Christianity. The very high-profile conversion of the journalist Magdi Allen, who was baptised by Pope Benedict in Rome on Saturday, I think it was 2007, is only the tip of the iceberg. Indeed, Islamic cleric Ahmad al-Qahtani stated on Al Jazeera TV a while back, who's a Muslim, saying it, that six million Muslims convert to Christianity annually, many of them persuaded by Botros's public ministry. More recently, Al Jazeera noted Life TV's unprecedented evangelical raid on the Muslim world. So isn't that good news? Yeah, in a recent article, um, Raymond Ibrahim, National Review, says, Father Botros's motive is not to incite the West against Islam or to promote Israeli interests or demonise Muslims, but it's to draw Muslims away from the dead legalism of Sharia to the spirituality of Christianity. He always says, I love Muslims in every program. He always makes sure he says that. Many Western critics fail to appreciate that and, to, and um, that Muslims are looking 
often, you know, that they, they find a great relief in finding something spiritually satisfying and that the West has a spirituality, not secularism only and capitalism and materialism and feminism. That the spirit, there's a spirituality that can be offered in its place. The truths of one religion can only be challenged and supplanted by the truths of another. And so Father Zachariah Boutros has been fighting fire with fire. I actually heard him speak on YouTube on the net and he said sometimes their baptisms, they have so many people they have to baptise, they just take them all down to some beach and they do them by, you know, 500s and they just dunk them into water. These are Orthodox, but these are all Muslims who have come to Christ. So there's another side to the story than the twilight zone of, you know, lack of conversions in the Western world. There's growth and there's a lot of uh, fire happening in the world. Now, my conversion story concerns a lady in Sydney. But I wanted to just put that in as a background so you understand that Muslims do get converted to Christianity. I personally know of eight. Just add one thing there before we move on there. But Butra Zakaria, um, his, his, his way of operating is that he targets Muhammad personally. <laughs> and from the writings that of from the hadith in particular, the, the sayings and actions of Muhammad. The hadith is the, like the traditions of Muhammad put down in writing that parallel the Quran. And that's his, and so he quotes from Islamic sources about Muhammad himself and exposes Muhammad as just, as a fraud, as a false prophet who doesn't compare in any way, shape or form with Christ. And I think that's the best way with That's Islam. right, because he, he treats all the imams and the Muslims he's talking to with great respect, because he says, look, your people have believed, but let me point out what your beliefs are, because he knows the beliefs better than they do. And what really gets me is that they, the Muslims actually will go, you know, we always say, oh, there's an irrationality about Islam and all this sort of thing, but these Muslims will actually go and check the quotes he's challenged them with. And when they find out that he's right, they've often come back really ashen-faced, and realised that they've been told lies. And look, lies matter to most people. You know, lies matter. If you've been told something and it's a total lie, it's uh, not good. So that's how he's doing it, by getting them to go back to the sources. But here in Sydney, there's a lady, and I won't use her real name, um, Saba, I'll, I'll call her Saba, comes from Cairo. She's got a Bachelor of Laws from Cairo University and business qualifications came from a family, her father was a judge, died young at 46, her mother was a housewife. She's the eldest of three children and was born into a not very strict Islamic family, though they have become stricter in the last sort of 10, 20 years. Early in life, Sarah noticed discrimination against Christians in Cairo when she was studying law. She had to study Sharia law. While she studied, she met Christians and she always thought of them as nice, reasonable, courteous people. See how the behaviour can have an influence, those very first moments. And she said, I could see peace in them. They were humble. And she said, I could see that they were spat against and discriminated against. But they still kept happy despite that. See how that little detail stayed in her head. It's the first thing she noticed. When she was studying Roman history, which was part of her law course, she was able to get a tutor to help her. And she felt as she really did not know as much as her Christian peers in the law course. Then she found that at the end of the year the Christian students were failed 
And she, who she knew she didn't know as much as they did, got a distinction, knowing that it wasn't really a fair mark. She complained about it to her mother, but her mother said, you just have to accept these things. At that stage, she was very receptive after that visible discrimination to go into a Christian church and she actually went into one incognito. Pretty unusual, I suppose, for a Muslim in Cairo, but she did. She found peace in the church and uh, she said she felt as if the Holy Spirit was there, like she already, in retrospect, maybe puts that interpretation on it. She said, I remember the first day I walked into a Christian church. It was a, um, yeah, it was a, I don't know if it was a Coptic Orthodox or a Coptic Catholic one, but she said, I saw the people as being abused and crucified as Christ was. And she said, I can't remember it without tears. She was often told to go to the mosque, but she said she always felt her feet dragging when she was being told to go there. In time, she met a man and married him. He was a Muslim man. He was not a strict Muslim. And uh, they decided to emigrate to Australia in the 1970s with their little daughter. And then when in Australia, she moved in Muslim society. But she still had this yen to go to Coptic Orthodox churches. And this is what she told him. And so she did from time to time. And her husband wasn't such a strong Muslim, so occasionally he'd sort of go along with her. But um, she said what really rocked her was seeing a film that was shown once called Christ the King. She was overwhelmed by how beautiful it was and how Jesus healed the sick. She says Jesus was a beautiful man when he was crucified in the movie. She was very emotionally affected by it and she cried. She recalls thinking, you, Jesus, come with peace, but Muhammad came with the sword. And at this point, she started to call Jesus Lord and started to pray to him. She recalls asking Jesus, and what's happened to him, referring to Muhammad? And then she had an upheaval in her life. Her life didn't go smoothly. Her marriage broke down. She had two children. Her husband left her. She was on her own. She felt as if her world had fallen apart. Being a Muslim, she thought, oh well, she was free to marry again, even though she had these Christian ideas, and she did end up marrying again, a man who I was called John. Um, she tried to link up with some Christians, um, but they basically said to her, um, look, if you try to convert to us, Muslims will kill you. So, you know, it was interesting, why did she get that message? She said she couldn't understand why people were trying to discourage her. It was in Sydney, it happened. She said it was a, like, this is about 20 years ago or something. Then she said later, she found herself in Cabramatta one day near the Catholic Church and went inside and actually on the very first time she went inside, she met the parish priest there who was none other than Father Chris Tui, now Bishop Tui. Or whether, yeah, and he, she just said to him straight out of the blue, look, I want to learn about Christianity and can you tell me how I can do it? And so he said to her, are you an atheist? And she said, no. He then asked, are you a Christian? She said, no. Who are you? She said, I'm in the darkness and I want to see the light. <laughs> and Father Tui asked her, what light? And she said, the Lord. When she told him he was a Muslim, she said he was shocked <laughs> to the core of his bones. He said he, was, he thought he was going to have a heart attack because I, I don't think he... Yeah, but anyway, he took her on. And he instructed her. She had Father Tui instruct her in the Catholic faith 
and she said in every lesson she felt like she was undergoing this kind of rebirth. And um, she had this um, instruction after a year, I think she was baptised in October 1983, and she recalls the church being full, it was in that church in Cabramatta, and she said when she walked down the aisle to baptism, it was almost like a, like mar a marriage, you know, to the church. And she said she felt as if the Holy Spirit was walking with her. All these days of conversion are recalled by people. It's, it's such momentous days. It's usually what I hear from the converts. It was the happiest day of their lives. That's how they speak of it. Um, then she had many problems in her life because some Muslims heard of her conversion. And in her work, she worked mixed with some Muslims, and that some actually physically spat on her. And uh, they basically threatened her. And one of them actually in the tea room pulled out a knife and threatened her and said, you're a sacrifice. Then she learned her mother in Cairo had disowned her and shortly afterwards had a stroke. How would you be? daughter of your mother who's had a stroke and that everybody's blaming you for it. She sought advice from Father Tuhi, who told her, trust in God, fearing God. She said, I know, but some of my family are in the Egyptian secret service and there's even a general in the army and they've sent me a message saying, we're going to kill you. He said, trust in God. <coughs> Despite these threats that she had received, she said she had some relations in Egypt and she had tentatively like, thought, thought she could go quietly without meeting anyone, just see some of her relations who weren't too anti her. So she thought she'll go and get a plane and fly there. But she prayed a lot and she asked if, you know, our, our Lady, she did a novena to Our Lady and said, please let me know if I should fly back to Cairo and come back. I just would like to know. And on the ninth day, and she fasted during the nine days, on the ninth day she got a phone call from her brother saying, if you land in Cairo at the airport, I'll personally come with a sword, cut you into pieces and drink your blood. Lovely brother. She said, thank you, Virgin Mary, for answering my prayer. I'm not going to Cairo. So she said, you know, the power of prayer is great. And she said, she stayed and... Um, she basically said she had many problems, financial, you know, and family problems and otherwise. But she said, strange to say, some of the people who in the past had wished her ill and spat on her, even some of the Muslims who had said, we hate your guts and this sort of thing, had rung her when they were sick and asked her to pray for them. It's a very interesting thing, but she's had that happen on a number of occasions because they recognise she's a person of prayer. And it's interesting that even across the religious divides, if you're a person of prayer, that says something, that people can see it in you. So Sabah finished the interview with me with a prayer, saying that she often says, Lord, I need you, I love you, I praise you, I serve you, I trust you, have mercy on me, you will always be in my heart. And she says to all her friends, thank and praise him at the end of each day, thank him for the cross, thank him forever. That's, that's the lady who's a Muslim convert now in Sydney, goes to a lot of prayer meetings. I think she might be a bit into the healing scene and all that. She's very much on fire for the faith. Um, and then the last, I want to hear one more story very quickly. It's a Chinese lady I met from mainland China who sat down in a cafe one day um, and I'd met her because I was counselling her uh, about a pro-life matter. 
And she just said to me straight out of the blue, I grew up in Mao's China. I know nothing about the Catholic faith. Who is Jesus? He just looked at me. It was in Edgecliff at the shopping centre. You imagine the scene. Nobody doesn't know anything about Catholicism. Not a thing. This asks you, who is Jesus? How do you start? You start saying he's son of God, well there's a God, there's Genesis. I mean, where do you actually get all the facts together to start explaining it? In any case, um, she met a few people and she did get instruction in the end, but she grew up in communist China and she said, we made promises of loyalty to the Chinese government. And I remember at the age of 10 when Mao Zedong died and in my town, in the village, everyone was so shocked they thought China could not survive without him. We all cried. Mao was so good to us. He was like a god to us. We built statues and monuments to him. Mei Li said, we all had to keep silent for three minutes. We all were quite terrified. We thought there'd be big problems in China from now on. So all we'd ever heard about was Mao. He was our father, our brother, our uncle, God, you know, everybody to us. And now he was dead. But you see, the psychological and spiritual force at work. She's sitting there as a 10-year-old saying, well, where is he? Where do you go after death? Where is he sleeping? If he's God, where is he? Very good question. Children have this natural instinct to ask a good question. She was the first in her family to get to university. She went to Hainan University. She was a good student. And she recalls in one of the students, in her student days, sitting at lunch in the, um, in the refectory. And there were 20 of them. And one of them said, I've heard there's this book called the Bible. And I went, what's this book? Yeah, a book called Bible. And uh, look, I knew somebody who knew somebody who had one once. And um, they said, who? And they said, well, I have a friend whose auntie, she was somebody who had a very strange name. And she lived in China a long time ago. Her name was Missionary. What? <laughs> Missionary? This is in Mao's China, mind you. Ah, oh, they said, look, and the book... Bible, it's so good. And they said, oh, not one of them had a Bible, not a clue how to get hold of one. They're all sitting there thinking, you know, where can we get one? One girl said, I saw an ad in a paper. said, if you write to Hong Kong, they send you one for free. So they all wrote this letter to the table. They all mailed it and not one of them ever got a Bible. <laughs> not one of them, but they all wrote off asking for one because I'm sure it was sort of censored mail, I mean. You know, Bible from Hong Kong, no way. In any case, the years went by and graduated, got a job in a hospital. She had to attend regular meetings to show her enthusiasm for communism. She saved all her money that she earned in the hospital and decided she was going to come and study in Australia. So things were loosening up. It was already the 2000s, you know, and she saved up a trip to Australia and back and she was going to be one of these overseas students go to study in a college. So she saved up the money, came here, enrolled in the, the community care certificate. She was renting a room in a house of a lady in Rockdale and one Sunday, having nothing better to do, she just went for a walk and she walks past a Catholic church. And she thought, wow, here I am. Here's a church. But I don't dare go inside. And she saw people coming in and out, but she thought she didn't dare. So what she did was 
she walked around the church three times, too terrified to enter. And then she said the third time she got the courage and she said, just just go in and have a look and then you can run out. So she kind of edged her way up the path like this. Can you imagine this in a suburban church, the dramas that are going on in people's hearts who are searching for Christ? She edged her way in and when she got there, a lady came up and said, hello, how are you? My name's Frances. Would you like to come inside? She was so terrified she couldn't answer. She just had an arm taken in and she sat down and she was there for a mass. And she said to me later, she said, I just stood up when everyone stood up. I knelt, I went up, I watched what everybody did. And at the end of that mass, Frances said, what's your name and who are you? And come back next week and we'll have, you know, would you like a cup of tea now? So on the porch, never knock the cup of tea on the porch outside a church. It can have a great missionary value. And uh, she said she came back. And that Frances started to tell her the plot, the plot about God, the Trinity, Mary, Joseph. And she had been in a difficult situation in that she had met a man, she'd become pregnant, the man had gone. And the, one of the reasons that I got to meet her was that she didn't know what to do with the baby. She had very good pro-life instincts and she had the baby. And the baby's already been born. But she wanted to know more about the church. But she said to me, you've got to understand that... When people come out of the communist system, it's not that they believe communist things. She said it's that they find it hard to believe anything. She said you you don't understand the process of brainwashing. Your mind can't think. She said when you try to think of these things, it's like there's a, a dead wood, a darkness there. And she said I tried to think of God, but she said it was like something was just missing. But she said with time and just easing that straitjacket of the communist years, she got to kind of ask a few questions again of herself and she said um, she started to think about God and eventually she decided she would try to become a Catholic. As it turned out, there was a Mandarin-speaking Latin Mass priest <laughs> living in Petersham who took on the catechesis. I used to drive her there and uh, pick her up and she had a marvellous, marvellous questions that she asked she was using some program and then this year, in January, at Lewisham's Maternal Heart of Mary Church, she was baptised with her little boy and then confession, communion, confirmation, all in the space of two days and you have never seen a happier person. You know, she was just, she dressed in white and she had a veil on her head and like she was just so on fire for the faith. She wore a scapula on the outside so everybody could see it, you know. And now she's attending TAFE colleges and she gets very upset when people are anti-Catholic and she put up a hand in the TAFE class one day when her TAFE teacher was making anti-Catholic comments and said, you shouldn't be saying things like that. You know, Christianity, Catholics, you know, Catholicism is very important. Why do you abuse them? Here's the new convert standing up for the faith. And I told her, it's not right to do so. You shouldn't do it. She said, I told her. <laughs> and that's it. So having recounted these stories of conversion, which have come to an end now, I'd like to say there are always going to be conversions because the questions are always going to be there. And what are those questions? I think Pope John Paul II sums them up beautifully at the outset of faith and reason. He calls them this cultural and spiritual bedrock of every civilization, And they're the questions, who am I? Where have I come from? Where am I going? 
Why is there evil? What is there after this life? Pope John Paul II says, These are the questions which we find in the sacred writings of Israel, also in the Veda and the Avesa. We find them in the writings of Confucius and Lao Tse, and in the preaching of the Tirankana and Buddha. They appear in the poetry of Homer and the tragedies of Euripides and Sophocles, as they do in the philosophical writings of Plato and Aristotle. They are the questions which have their common source in the quest for meaning and which have always compelled the human heart. And that's why we always have conversions, because there are questions that compel the human heart. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Wanda Skowonska. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.